Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederata.com. So let's start tonight with updated information on the East Palestine train derailment. When I wrote my script last week, there was much less information about things like potential for water contamination and other toxic results. Now, a main area of concern is dioxins, which can linger in the environment and the EPA has not started testing for those yet, Um, even though residents of the area have asked them to do that. And there could have been byproducts produced by the mixing of those chemicals. Gerald Poge, an expert in environmental health and former member of the U.S. Chemicals Safety and Hazard Investigation Board, noted that these chemicals might have produced new chemicals that might then persist after the controlled burn. There could be hundreds of different breakdown products that still remain, for which we have often very poor toxicological profiles, Dr. Poach said. We're oftentimes in, in, in this unknown place. Now, another fear is that while the vinyl chloride that spilled into a stream and killed around 3,500 fish in the process may have evaporated from the water, but it may have also seeped into the subsoil where it could affect wells in the future. Now, people do report that they continue to feel sick, but I will note that this might be due to what's called the nocebo effect, as there has been extensive testing of the air by the EPA and local agencies. Um, I assume you know, but just in case, the nocebo effect works exactly the same way as the placebo effect, except it makes you sick, not better. Now, the EPA has assured residents that the municipal water supply is safe, but many have wells that will still need to be tested, and obviously there is a real crunch on testing because there are so many people with well water. Now, again, I want to make clear that none of this is meant to downplay the reality that this is a real disaster and there are real worries about corporate malfeasance and government inaction. There are good reasons to believe that Norfolk Southern will do everything it can to downplay the impact of this incident and do what it can to pay out the least amount of money. And the EPA has not had the best reputation in recent years, though most of that is due to weakening of regulations and lack of laws to support actual environmental protection. And again, I want to stress, as I said last week, I believe, that railroads are a hugely profitable enterprise fueled by intense lobbying in Washington to prevent safety measures from being enforced because that would cost money. 
Now, I hope that things are as they seem and that the people in this area won't have to pay for this accident for years to come. But unfortunately, it's only in years to come where we will actually know the true impact of this train wreck in every sense of the word. And thinking of corporate greed, I suspect you have probably heard by now that Eli Lilly is planning to cut the price of insulin and that it will be capped at $35 a month for those with Medicare or seniors with private insurance. They say that they'll lower the cost of insulin for others later this year. Of course, what they don't shoot shout from the rooftops is that the Inflation Reduction Act required the cap of $35 for those 65 and older. Now, according to the American Diabetes Association, insulin is 10 times more expensive in the U.S. than any other country, despite the fact that more than 37 million people, or 11% of the population, have diabetes. As many as one in four people have said that the high cost of insulin has caused them to ration or skip doses altogether. People have literally died of this completely preventable disease because they couldn't afford their insulin. So while this is good news, I don't think I'm going to strain my wrist patting Eli Lilly on the back. This is just another example of how of how our healthcare system is, frankly, irreparably broken. There is absolutely no reason for people in the richest country in the world to have people die because they can't afford insulin. A drug that was meant to be given to the world basically for free. And, you know, they will talk about how, well, they've created newer versions of insulin I refuse to believe that the production cost for the drug is anything near the price that they charge for it. So again, I'm not exactly going to throw a party for Eli Lilly. Now, they are the first to actually come out and support lowering the price of this life-saving drug. So I will give them a small golf clap. <laughs> and uh, this is actually kind of relevant to my life in a oblique way, because uh, unfortunately we just found out that our cat has diabetes. And so we are going to have to be getting insulin for our cat. Now, of course, this is different from, I mean, it's, it's technically the same as insulin for humans, but obviously we'll be getting it through a pet pharmacy and things like that. But um, yeah, we have just been inducted into the world of people who need access to insulin. Um, and, you know, I don't uh, miss the irony or the privilege that I have in order to be able to give my cat insulin when there are people in this country who are not able to afford it for themselves. Um, you know, unfortunately, I would have no idea how to give them the insulin that we 
are going to get for our cat for them. And I don't know if it would be even good for them. So it is, it is a bit of apples and oranges, but I do feel that very distinct privilege, uh, position there where I do have the ability to say, I am going to pay for insulin for my cat. Um, so yeah. Anyways, let us move on now from the sort of uh, political footballs that are happening in the news recently and talk about something really way more interesting. Mori Garib, a professor of aeronautics and medical engineering at Caltech, was studying digitized versions of the Codex Arundel, a collection of papers written by Leonardo da Vinci, when he noticed something interesting. Several small sketches of triangles. Um, as an aside, just because it occurred to me literally this instant, uh, I do find it very interesting that we end up calling uh, these manuscripts from various times and places as the codex and usually someone's name. And it's usually the antiquities dealer that uh, originally found it or um, the uh, town in which or city in which it is held. So I think about like the Dresden Codex, which is actually a Maya uh, work. And I just, I feel like maybe we should get over that and start calling them something more, uh, either more scientific or more descriptive of what they actually are. Um, it's really colonialistic, um, and I don't like it. <laughs> but anyways, uh, at least Leonardo is actually European. And so, uh, Garib had actually been looking for visualizations of flow to discuss with a graduate class, but this was something different and new. The sketches seemed to show the geometry of grains of sand pouring out of a jar. What caught my eye was when he wrote Equatione di Mote on the hypotenuse of one of his sketched triangles, the one that was an isosceles right triangle, said Garib, who is the lead author of the paper in the journal Leonardo. Um, I became interested to see what Leonardo meant by that phrase. And we'll find that out in a bit. <laughs> Garib worked with Chris Rowe, at the time a postdoc and now an assistant professor at Cornell, and Flavio Noca, of the University of Applied Sciences and Arts in Western Switzerland, uh, located in Geneva. And he actually provided the translations of the text, which was written in da Vinci's uh, notorious left-handed mirror writing. Now, after further study, they realized that Leonardo was studying the nature of gravity. The little triangles were an attempt to draw the connection between gravity and acceleration. This was at least 150 years before Isaac Newton derived his laws of motion and several hundred years before Einstein's general theory of relativity. 
Garib and his team published a paper on the find and discovered that the calculations involved gave a gravitational constant that is around 97% accurate, which is amazing in and of itself. But it's even crazier when you realize that Leonardo did this without an accurate timekeeping device or the calculus that Newton used to derive his laws. Now, of course, I've discussed several times that Newton didn't invent uh, the calculus uh, as is often uh attributed in the past. Uh, technically, the Babylonians in the fourth century were our in the fourth century BC were already using a form of calculus. And I talked about that um, at some point in the past. But also Leibniz uh, technically was the first 17th century polymath to rediscover it. Um, and Newton hint and him basically did it independently. Um, there was a big kerfuffle over it. Um, Leibniz apparently was much more uh, into the technical side of it, the notation and how to uh, write it out and things like that, whereas Newton was much more interested in how to apply it to forces and gravity and things like that. So they were both important and uh, needed to give us uh, what is basically the beginnings of the modern form of the calculus. And there's a whole argument about whether it's calculus or the calculus. Um, I'm going to go with the calculus uh, because I'm pretty sure that that's what they called it. Um, but I don't have a strong opinion. <laughs> Um, but some mathematicians do, uh, but I don't want to get into that uh, particular uh, <laughs> fight, shall we say. Anyways, getting back to Leonardo, we don't know if Leonardo did further experiments or probed this question more deeply, Garib said, but the fact that he was grappling with the problems in this way in the early 1500s demonstrates just how far ahead his thinking was. And um, unfortunately, while we do have a lot of Leonardo's notebooks, a lot of them have been lost. So he could have been doing more. He could have figured out more things. And we just would never know because we don't have access to that material anymore. It's very unfortunate. And so uh, the things that we do have, though, are pretty impressive. His sketches show that he understood the geometry of the motion of the material pouring from the pitcher. If the pitcher accelerates at a constant rate, the line of falling material is vertical. But if the pitcher accelerates, at, I'm sorry, if the pitcher is moved at a constant rate, um, the line of falling material is vertical. But if the pitcher accelerates at a constant rate, the line of falling material is a straight but slanted line forming a triangle. And if you accelerate the pitcher at the same rate that gravity accelerates the falling material, it creates an isosceles right triangle or an equatione di moti or equalization of motions. What is Leonardo trying to do, says Garib? He's trying to say, if I could move my hand or move the jar the same way that gravity acts on particles, in this case sand, if 
in a given time, they travel the same distance, then I have mimicked the gravity just by acceleration. He calls it the act of motion. He does it in a different direction than gravity. So that means he clearly understood that gravity is a kind of acceleration, but toward the earth. Otherwise, he would not have tried to mimic it by acceleration. He then tried to model the acceleration mathematically, but here he faltered, uh, which, you know, we can definitely <laughs> forgive him for. The team created a computer model that recreated the water pitcher experiment, which shows where his error comes from. What we saw is that Leonardo wrestled with this, but he modeled it as the falling object's distance was proportional to two to the to the t power, with t representing time, instead of proportional to t squared, Rowe said. It's wrong, but we later found out that he used this sort of wrong equation in the correct way. The equation was Leonardo's attempt to use geometry, as he did not, again, have access to cal calculus, to derive the gravitational constant. constant. There was no concept of equations or math, but Leonardo had such an intuitive understanding of math in its non-equation form, Rowe told Ars Technica. I think that's where he started using geometry to write out equations in a way. Without any tools, no clocks, he just used this geometry as evidence for equalizing the two motions, one that he can control, one that he cannot, but wants to understand and the other line to show that they're equalized at every little step. He approaches it more like a computer scientist and modeled it more algorithmically. Now, of course, this is, should not come as a surprise, as da Vinci was such an amazing polymath. He created sketches of flying machines, bicycles, cranes, dredges for clearing harbors and canals, an unsinkable double-hulled ship, and a host of other futuristic technologies. He wrote about the idea of making glasses to see the moon enlarged, anticipating the telescope a century before it was produced. And in 2003, Alessandro Visosi, director of Italy's Museo Ideale, discovered some recipes for some sort of mixture. And so when experimenting with the recipes, Vizzozzi created a mixture that hardened into a material very much resembling Bakelite. Now, Bakelite was the first commercially available synthetic plastic, and it was used heavily in the early part of the 20th century. So you've probably seen like a Bakelite telephone or some Bakelite jewelry, for instance. So it turns out that Leonardo may have actually created a form of synthetic plastic centuries earlier. There is also his extensive knowledge of, and drawings of human anatomy. He wrote about the power of the heart to pump blood 150 years before William Harvey first described the circulatory system. And decades ago, 
Garib worked with the Oxford historian Martin Kemp and a team that showed that Leonardo created the first artificial heart valve. They actually tested it. And in 2005, a British heart surgeon, Francis Wells, pioneered a new procedure to repair damaged hearts based on Leonardo's sketches. That got me into Leonardo's way of thinking. From his methods of visualization to methods of understanding science, Garib said. And Garib wants to pass that understanding on to others. This was not really supposed to be a historical nor a review paper, said Garib. It's more showing a tiny corner of Leonardo's brain. That's important for students and young scientists trying to discover thing, things. There's so many things to be discovered, but we are often helpless because we do not have the right instruments or the right tools to do it. This is just our humble way of telling them you are much bigger than your instruments. First, you need to use your creativity as much as you can before you even start to think about discovery. So that is very cool. And uh, obviously, not everyone is going to be Leonardo da Vinci. He was clearly uh, a man apart from uh, (laughs) others. And, um, you know, definitely is one of those, if you had a time machine, where would you go? I would go to Leonardo da Vinci's workshop. Absolutely. Uh, after having taken a crash course in, uh, Renaissance Italian, obviously. Um, but you know, if we have a time machine, we probably have some sort of universal translator gadget as well. (laughs) So I wouldn't actually have to do that, but, um, you know, obviously he continues to capture the imagination. Um, he definitely wasn't the only Renaissance inventor. Um, there were several others as well, but he definitely was the sort of master of everything. He was interested in, you know, anatomy and mechanics and physics and also painting beautiful paintings and, um, you know, uh, just really an amazing all around person. Uh, I joked the other day to someone that clearly he was an alien, um, <laughs> but, uh, I don't actually believe that. Um, I do not believe in aliens having come to earth. Um, I know I say this a lot, but it bears repeating given our current, situation when it comes to culture that I believe that all UFOs have some sort of naturalistic explanation, regardless of what that is. I can't tell you uh, in many cases, but I believe that they will all be found eventually to be some sort of naturalistic thing or man-made thing. Um, And none of them are actual aliens uh, trying to observe us or probe us or any of those things. Um, I haven't actually looked at it yet, but there is a new paper that suggests that, um, I suspect it might be those components needed for RNA and DNA that might not be out in other places in the, uh, universe. Cause there was an article about why, 
uh, life might be harder to create other places than it is here. Um, so, uh, maybe I'll talk about that, uh, next week, but, um, yeah, anyways, <laughs> we have strayed, um, and we're actually going to take a, uh, moment to have a break and, uh, we're going to do some show promos and some PSAs and we come back, uh, we'll talk about a different, uh, medieval manuscript. Um, so yeah. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. 
And as I noted, we are going to talk about a medieval manuscript. And that's actually going to be an entrance into a larger discussion of imaging objects. And so Jessica Hodgson, a grad student at the University of Leicester, was studying a manuscript in the collection of the Bodleian Libraries at the University of Oxford when she noticed something, a faint etched inscription, which she read as Edberg, which is a known medieval name. But she couldn't be quite sure as it was very faint. So she asked for the help of John Barrett, technical leader of a recent project at the libraries called Archiox, Analyzing and Recording Cultural Heritage in Oxford. Barrett used the project's prototype photometric stereo recording and 3D scanning devices to confirm the inscription indeed said Edberg. And in fact, the analysis found several sketched versions, etched versions of both the name, full and abbreviated, as well as several doodles in the margins. Of course, uh, if you know anything about medieval manuscripts, they are well known for their margin doodles. Um, and for the ones that were actually created by the scribes, a lot of them are wild. Um, if you ever want to have a fun time, just spend a, uh, afternoon Googling, uh, margin doodles in medieval manuscripts. They have a specific name, but I can't think of it right now. So just who was Edberg? Hodgins believes she would have been a high-status woman and thus highly educated, possibly a female scribe or an abbess. She most likely lived between 700 and 750 CE during the early medieval period. This discovery pairs with another made way back in 1935, where the letters EADB and plus E plus were discovered in the lower margin of another page in the same manuscript. Both are thought to be abbreviations for Edberg or Edberg. The Archiox project is a collaboration between the Bodleian Libraries and the Factum Foundation, read by Adam Lowe, an artist trained at Oxford in the 1990s. In 2001, Lowe moved to Madrid to create a multidisciplinary workshop that's really a playground for artists, where we build bridges between new technologies and traditional skills. By, 20, by 2009, he was getting so much interest from historical projects to use the group's technology that he set up the Factum Foundation. It now serves as a research hub for high-resolution, three-dimensional recording of the surfaces of objects from around the world, mostly in museums and other such institutions. Not only manuscripts and books, but also paintings, tombs, and a host of other objects. Among the innovations used in recent years to image objects are various kinds of non-destructive x-ray imaging used by both archaeologists and conservationists. One that has revealed some great things in recent years is multispectral imaging, which takes visible images in blue, green, and red, as well as infrared and x-ray images 
and then combines the results to show details that would otherwise be invisible to the naked eye. Swiss scientists scientists used the technique to reconstruct photographic plates created by the French physicist Gabriel Lippmann, a pioneer in color photography and winner of the 1908 Nobel Prize in Physics. Now, I actually talked about Lippmann last August. Uh, so if you want to go into the archive to learn more about him, um, I do have a show where I talked about him uh, in August of 2022. Um, I did look that up because I remembered his name specifically. The technique was also used to discover the first known traces in Greek of the astronomer Hipparchus's lost star catalog. It was actually found to be hiding beneath a Christian text on a medieval parchment, because, of course, we know that in medieval times, often uh, parchment was reused because parchment was expensive. And so uh, the way that you would reuse it is that the inks didn't really soak into the parchment. They basically just uh, adhered to the surface. And so you could basically scrape off the ink from um, the parchment and reuse it. But of course, with the uh, 21st century imaging tools that we have, we can create uh, images of those older texts from uh, the chemical interactions that happened with the ink. Now, Lowe realized that, you know, this was great, but no one was working on recording the actual surfaces of objects. Traditionally, the digitization of books has focused on the extraction of the text, which can then be accessed online, said Lowe. And again, while he understands that this is a worthwhile pursuit, he wanted to work with Barrett on examining what he called the materiality of the manuscripts, their surface qualities, book binding, typography, and other features beyond simply what the text said. Now, the Factum Foundation began with 3D scanning systems, but eventually developed their own photometric stereo scanner named Celine, which has now been deployed at the Bodleian. The system is similar to photogrammet photogrammetry systems that feature domes of light that illuminate a target object from multiple perspectives to capture 3D data. Unfortunately, that technique encodes a lot of data, which makes it unsuitable for larger objects. Instead, Celine creates what Lowe and Barrett call a 2.5D imaging, high resolution but low relief. Now, Celine is around 10 to 20 times more efficient than traditional photogrammetry, according to Lowe. Celine stores the 3D data as a 2D image, thus the 2.5 name. The system uses a high-resolution digital camera in a fixed position on a large frame, which takes just four source images, but each are lit carefully from a different direction using four custom flash units. This allows the system to capture a series of image tiles at 
1,040 pixels per inch resolution. That's a lot. The number of tiles is determined by the size of the artifact. Capturing data is all about the relationship between information and noise, Lowe told ours. The quality of the data we're capturing with four images is not significantly less than with 40. In many ways, it's significantly better because there's less noise in the data. The result is a shaded render that allows for examining the surface texture of the original from any angle. Now, the image is in grayscale, so there is little distraction from the surface pigment and really allows you to focus on the surface itself. Um, so in the pictures, for instance, there was a um, example where they had taken a um, image, they had done imaging on a Japanese woodcut print. And so they had the side by side of the actual print, and then they had the render and you can still see all of the details in the original sort of woodblock stamp, but it is all in grayscale. So it's a very same and yet very different um, perspective on the same object. Um, and so Celine can record surface details down to 18 to 25 microns or even less. The team then combines this data with that from the Lucida 3D imaging system to make it even easier to see the height and depth of the surface. We're capturing differences in height of about a fifth of the width of a human hair, Barrett told ours. So we're looking to see the materiality of the substrate. Whether it's parchment or paper, we can see all of these invisible markings scratches people have left behind. Now, the first artifacts from the Bodleian that Barrett wanted to examine were a sampling of 18th century copper printing plates. Not only are these notoriously hard to photograph with just regular equipment uh, or other techniques, there are hundreds housed in the Bodleian, and many are badly corroded from, well, 300 years of exposure to the air and elements. Now, that corrosion has the side effect of making the plates dull. Uh, thus, they reflect little light and hide the details and tonal variations once visible. Barrett chose a series of plates, including those with portraits of the antiquarian Anthony Wood and a 17th century archbishop named William Laud and also portraits made from drawings attributed to the poet William Blake. Working in tandem, Celine and Lucida were able to reveal the original details. Barrett adapted a GIS, or Geographic Information System, to create a topographical map of the surface details, which with such high resolution that when viewed from the side, you can clearly see the peaks and grooves of the engraving. Some plates had shallow engravings on the back, usually practice images by the artist, which are barely visible. The back of one plate originally looked like 
just a series of horizontal lines. But the imagers were able to show that it was actually musical notation, complete with lyrics likely likely inspired by Psalm 9. The team was then able to 3D print copies in resin backed by a copper sheet. And a few of these were actually run through a facsimile of Goya's printing press, including the portrait of Wood. Now, it turned out that these prints are not quite as high quality as the originals, but Lowe attributes this to the limitations of 3D printing, not the scanning technology. As 3D printing improves, more of these plates should be able to be brought back to life after 300 years. And then they could be studied much more easily. So uh, there is a lot of potential for this technology. Now, one of the prized possessions of the Bodleian is the Go map, a late medieval map of Great Britain. Spectral imaging studies in 2017 suggested that the map is not actually a single map, but rather three distinct layered maps. The oldest is from the late 14th century and depicts the whole of Britain. The second is from the early 15th century and shows the south of England and Wales. And the final layer is from the late 15th century and shows southeast and south central England. Um, Now, it actually is a pretty good job. It's actually one of the first maps that was made that didn't sort of follow uh, the sort of Aristotelian idea of um, what areas looked like um, or ecclesiastic ideas and actually looks somewhat like what Britain actually looks like. Uh, It does have a funny bit at the top because they didn't really know what to do about Scotland, which was its own country at the time. Um, And so that's just kind of a... uh, best guess kind of rounded off uh, tip at the top. Um, But there was definitely some interesting things about it. And there are some places that actually look fairly decent, Um, though there are odd uh, omissions and there's some odd um, notations on the map. It's a little bit of a conundrum. Now, uh, the map actually has a collection of pinholes that are outlines of pictorial town signs. And this was likely created when someone traced the Go map onto another map. Using Celine and Lucida, Barrett and Lowe were able to map the pinholes in high resolution and were able to create a copy of the original map, which is rarely taken out of storage due to its condition. Uh, and so, yeah, that is another really cool application. Now let's, uh, circle back to our medieval manuscript and talk about that a little bit more. So the object is dubbed MS Selden Supra 30 and is a copy of the New Testament Acts of the Apostles, which is believed to have belonged to a woman or a group of women based on a prayer copied onto a blank page. Archeox was first produced a high-resolution shaded render of the surface and with additional processing created a more enhanced series of renders 
which again showed Edberg's name spelled out five times in full on five different pages of the manuscript. And there were also several abbreviated forms and those doodles in the margin seemed to be mostly human figures that were created by trace, tracing, uh, were traced by drawing a line around the reader's thumb or finger. So that's a really cool detail. Now, Hodgson and Barrett have traced nine women known as Edberg living in the region between the 7th and 10th centuries. One was the abbess of a female religious community in Kent from around 733 to 761 CE, a date consistent with that of the manuscript, making her the likely owner of the book. I think we need to carefully and systematically go through our early medieval collections now to try and find more of these because they tell us about people's interactions with the manuscripts, said Barrett. And that actually leads me to a note about books you own yourselves. Please write in them if you want. Doodle, write notes, do whatever. Someday an antiquarian or historian might puzzle over those doodles and cryptic notes and be delighted to try to solve the puzzle of your thoughts. Now, I actually got that exhortation directly from the curator of a rare book room. So it's legit. <laughs> um, I'm sure I've mentioned it at some point before, but yeah, um, definitely, uh, especially if you have a book that you really love um, and that you're going to care for uh, and that may get passed down to someone, definitely feel like books are not meant to be uh, sacrosanct. They are meant to be annotated. Um, any any librarian in a rare book room will tell you that. The librarians in, an, in the rest of the library will tell you, do not touch our books. Um, but rare book room librarians will thank you in the future. Okay, so we are going to switch gears now and talk about new research based on the samples brought back from the asteroid Ryugu. Now, we've talked about this several times, but new discoveries continue to be published. And in fact, we've mostly talked about the technical um, side of Ryugu. And so this is actually one of the first reports on the actual composition of the samples that were returned by Japan's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft in 2020. And so the new study is published in Science. The analysis of a small portion of the sample revealed that beyond carbon, carbon, there was also an abundance of molecules, including all of those known to be crucial to life as we know it, um, including many, I should say, not all. Uh, and so it included 15 amino acids, aka the building blocks of proteins, and these molecules are called prebiotic because, of course, they don't actually have any form of life. They're just the building box that you can put together to make life. Meteorites found on Earth have been found to contain prebiotic molecules in the past, but researchers weren't sure if this was contamination post-entering the atmosphere or if they were already on the asteroid from which the meteorite originated. 
In addition, researchers wanted to know if these compounds, if they were on asteroids, could they survive on the surface or did they need to be protected within the body of the object? These molecules came from surface dust. The presence of prebiotic molecules on the asteroid's surface, despite its harsh environment caused by solar heating and ultraviolet irradiation, as well as cosmic ray irradiation under high vacuum conditions, suggests that the uppermost surface grains of Ryugu have the potential to protect organic molecules, study leader Hiroshi Naraoka of Kyushu University in Japan said in a statement. This means that asteroids could spread some of the building blocks of life to other bodies in the solar system. A second study, also in science, suggests the organic materials may predate the formation of the solar system itself by having formed in the cloud of interstellar dust that eventually coalesced into Ryugu and all of these other planets, moons, all of the other planets, moons, and asteroids found in the solar system. And so they think that it might have already been out there before anything started to happen. Naraoka and an international team extracted the molecules from just 30 micrograms of sample. The entire sample was just 0.17 ounces or 5 grams. However, this was actually a huge improvement from the Hayabusa 1, which actually ended up malfunctioning and so only brought back a few micrograms in total. So even though they are using a small sample, it is better than anything they could have hoped for in the past. Now, the sample needed to be shared, obviously, with partners. So that's why they're using small amounts. Um, partners in the U.S. and Europe, and of course, some will almost certainly be sealed away for examination in the future. The team used a variety of solvents and analyzed the organic matter. They found thousands of combinations of molecules containing carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and or sulfur, and including the 15 amino acids. They also found amines, nitrogen canadium, containing molecules, and carbolic acids, which contain carbon, oxygen, and hydrogen in a specific structure. Study co-author Jason Dworkin, an astrobiologist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, notes in a statement that the composition is consistent with carbonaceous meteorites that have been exposed to water in space and then found on Earth. Now, despite this sounding quite promising, the researchers did not find sugars or nucleobases, components necessary for the production of DNA and RNA. It is possible these compounds are present in asteroid Ryugu, but are below our analytical detection limit given the relatively small sample mass available for study. Study co-author Daniel Glavin, also an astrobiologist at NASA's Goddard, said in the statement, Much more research is planned for the Ryugu samples, and soon we'll be able to compare them to other samples. 
Osiris Rex is expected to return much more sample mass from Bennu and will provide another important opportunity to look for trace organic building blocks of life in a carbon-rich asteroid, Dworkin said. And finally tonight, we are going to revisit a uh, family favorite, um, or I should say fan favorite, um, the Ingenuity helicopter. And so NASA announced uh, yesterday that Ingenuity, the Mars helicopter drone that is accompanying Perseverance uh, on its mission, completed its 46th flight um, on Saturday, uh, the 25th of February. And so that's from NASA's uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And so the goal of the flight was to, quote, reposition of the helicopter and scout future airfields, uh, the agency wrote in a flight briefing. And so the drone flew for about uh, 1,460 feet on the Mar- Martian surface between airfields Eta and Theta. And so it reached a typical 39-foot altitude and achieved a top speed of 11.9 miles per hour during the 135.9 second flight. And so Ingenuity is about to exceed its original five-flight test by tenfold. (laughs) And so, yeah, it is on its way to its 50th flight. And so it is really amazing. Um, And so, again, it's been given an expanded uh, mission, which is to assist Percy in its search by uh, sort of scouting out in uh, places in order to give Percy better uh, a better idea of where to go. And NASA has now already started plans for two sample helicopters on a joint mission with the ESA to return samples from Mars. And uh, Percy is supposed to bring la- samples to the lander itself, But if it doesn't manage to do that, the two backup helicopters will pick up identical, apparently lightsaber-shaped sample tubes uh, that Percy has been catching on the surface. And so right now, Ingenuity and Perseverance alike are in the midst of an eight-month campaign nicknamed Delta Top. And so they're working in a region that once had a lake and a river, uh, Delta. And so obviously they are looking for signs of life. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about whether or not they're going to find life on Mars. Um, There's a distinct possibility that it's out there. I'm just not sure uh, if I believe it's really going to be found. Um, you know, I still remember the time that they said they found it and then they were like, ha ha, just kidding. So, um, <laughs> I am currently agnostic on whether or not we will actually find signs of life on Mars. But even if we don't, 
NASA is learning tons and tons of things about uh, the red planet, which is a super good goal in and of itself. And so, yeah. And also we put a helicopter on another planet. I mean, if that's not something to be proud of, I don't know what is. <laughs> okay. Yes. There are many other things that we could be proud of, like, you know, actually doing something about the environment or uh, homelessness or war or all of those things. But, you know, small goals <laughs> for the moment. <laughs> all right. That is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, thank you for listening to Evidence Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.